welcome to the ninth episode of Tahir Podcast. And my guest today is Laura Casinov from the last episode. Welcome, Laura. Hi, thanks for having me again. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, so that, let's pick up from where we left off last episode. So okay. What are some of the things that stuck with you from your time in Yemen? Like stuff that you think about on a daily basis and stuff Sh- like that. Sure, sure. I mean, so, 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 so much. It's, it's, there's, I mean, being in Yemen and, and especially being in there, being in Yemen during 2011 was, I mean, it, 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 it was, it changed me on a fundamental level. But I think, you know, as it changed a lot of the people who were there on a fundamental level, it's hard to, you can't really go through something like that and not be changed on a fundamental level, I think. Um, so what I mean by that is, I mean, there's a lot of things. For one, um, I mean, I mentioned this a little bit in the last, Uh, last time we chatted but the extent to which I saw people coming to how beautiful it was when people came together sort of for the right reasons and united together and it was it was you know and obviously things have gone so poorly in Yemen since but it was just seeing that and and that like that was kind of undeniable that there was something really good that that came out of there was something really special being created there. I mean, there's a million reasons why, you know, uh, Yemen's is where it is today. And it has a lot to do with a lot of things. It doesn't have anything to do with the independent young people who came to protest and, um, you know, full of hopes and dreams. And that if they, seeing that happen and seeing sort of, I don't know, just the idea of the beauty that comes from that is something that has stuck with me. And it's it's kind of, it's it's come full circle at this point because for a while it was, you know, Yemen is in a, is, is stuck in a horrible war and is divided in a way that is, is it's hard to see how it's going to overcome what the state that it is now and sort of the divisions um, in both society and just literal, literal political divisions that are happening now. But the... Um, that so it was it was you know you saw that and it was like oh god it was all for nothing but it, I've realized that it's like it's not for nothing there was there was something beautiful that happened when people came together and you know I have been at protests in the U.S. since um, and it, protests about Trump about you know things like that I don't know Black Lives Matter protests and you know I see like things that I see there I recognized from Change Square from 2011 so it's really. I don't know what's it's special to know what happened to, to sort of live that um, feeling. So the other thing, that, you know, another thing that stuck with me is just, you know, there was a lot of suffering that happened then. So it's, it's hard to, um, I mean, you're forever changed by witnessing human suffering to that extent. I mean, the government attacked the protesters, you know, with lethal force, innocent people were killed, um, innocent people were injured you really sort of saw the depths of humanity in those moments. And I think that that hopefully that just can, you know, you just hope that that kind of witnessing that kind of suffering can at least stick with you to make you maybe a, a deeper person um, and not someone who gets caught up in a bunch of stupid things, not saying that I, I definitely do get caught up in a bunch of stupid things and worries, but um, I don't know. It just helps you sort of see things a little bit more clearly, I think. and and. Um, just to maybe not hold things as tightly. I don't know. It just, there's, there's everything. And then the other thing is, I mean, Yemen is still like a major part of my life. So that, you know, having gone through something like that there and, 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 you know, 
experienced it with Yemenis. It, um, you know, a lot of my friends are Yemeni. I, I talk to, my life has to do with Yemen every single day. I'm always chatting with, with people about something. And I mean, and I'm making this documentary about Socotra, you know, it's, I'm, my life still has a lot to do with Yemen. So I, um, you know, because of that, I just, I just, I can't really, I don't know. I can't just like let it go or move on or something because I'm, you know, as a, as a white American, I can, I don't have to think about Yemen anymore. I can leave. Um, but I don't know, something changed in me that it's not able to do that. So it's, I'm, I'm happy to continue to have, you know, Yemenis as friends and Yemen as a part of my life moving forward from there. Um, both like personally in terms of friendships and then also professionally in terms of like things I want to pursue. So um, I hope, I mean, I, I, I hope to go back at some point. Yeah. And you were recently in uh, Socotra Island, right? I hope yeah. I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah, how, how, yeah, that yeah. how are your feelings? And how, how... Oh yeah, so that was really special because it was the first time I had been back to Yemen since 2012. Um, you know, it's a, I didn't know, you know, we didn't know the war was going to happen to the, quite the extent that it happened. So I was always kind of thinking of going back. And then in 2015, it became quite difficult to go back to the north, particularly. I mean, I could go to southern Yemen, but um, so, so in the early 2020, right before the pandemic, I went with um, a British filmmaker and um, a sort of a friend, an American friend, um, American Italian friend who um, lived in Yemen and, and grew up there and had been to Socotra many, many times. Um, he came along to help produce this documentary that we were trying to shoot there. So it was really special to, I mean, or the plane stopped on the way to Socotra. The plane flew from Cairo to Seyoum, which is a city in um, southern, kind of southeastern Yemen. And then it went from Seyoum to Socotra. And you get, you had to get off the plane in Seyoum. And just, I was so excited to just be in Yemen. You know, it's just at Seyoum Airport. And from the airplane on the way there you could look and see um these like really spe spectacular sites in the Hadramaut which is Shabam which is like a this like ancient city of like skyscrapers but I, it's kind of well known with regards to like Yemen sort of Yemen's history and we saw that from the airplane and and saw Hadramaut's beautiful from the airplane so it's it's beautiful on the ground too and it was just it was, I couldn't believe I was seeing it it really felt real that I was in back in Yemen so that was really special and then being in Socotra is like a really interesting place because it's 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 a bit unique from Yemen but then you know there's some similarities and that because you know it's like an ancient culture from the islands and they Socotra speak their own language which is a pre-Arabic Semitic language um, but as well there are lots of Yemenis in Socotra now they're coming there to work um, because to work in the restaurants, but then also there's a lot of construction happening there and it's being developed a bit, um, which is a bit has to do with what the UAE is doing on Socotra. Um, and they're sort of buying up some land and, and just doing some slow development of the island. And so there's jobs there. So there were lots of Yemenis there and it felt very much like I was in Yemen, but it was weird. I was sharing this with my friend who was there, who also I mean, this friend was like, grew up in Sana'a and it was, we we're seeing it and hadn't been back to Yemen for a while either and we were saying it was so strange to like be in Yemen you know hearing Yemeni Arabic everywhere yeah. eating Yemeni food like it, having a very Yemeni restaurant experience which is a very like Yemeni restaurants are very much a part of the culture and they're a thing there's like fast-paced energy and things like that it was weird to be in Yemen but also feel very safe because you know even when I was there 2011 2012 and then left it was not um 
you know, I did, you didn't feel safe. Like it was constantly, you know, it wasn't as dangerous as it is now, but you constantly had to be vigilant with what was going on. And, you know, when you saw soldiers on the street, were they part of the pro-Sala army or the anti-Sala army and things like that? And just the culture was chill. So it was really, I mean, there have been some outbreaks of some issues that have, that have happened there, which is um, a, a long story, but in general, it's been very, very safe. So it was, it was just weird to be in Yemen and feel so safe, um, but be happy to be in Yemen. So that was, that was really a special thing. And I was, um, but it was also interesting to culture and Socotri culture is very, very different. And we spent some time, I mean, it's different and the same, it's both, but um, we spent some time with some Bedouin with a Bedouin family up in the mountains filming with them for a while and like a remote mountain village and, and like the brother and the family didn't even speak Arabic that well um, because they spoke Socotri and it was it, it, it was a special experience and it felt like oh my gosh this feels like so untouched by outsider influence and like untouched by capitalism you know, but that's changing um uh, but it, it was really I mean I, you know, I don't want to call a place untouched because a lot of, I mean, from, you know, as a Westerner, but it's untouched by Western, or that sort of Western influence. And it was, it was, um, but that's changing right now. Mm. So that's kind of some of what we were trying to capture with the documentary. But uh, yeah, it, it's a, I mean, it's stunningly beautiful and it is, yeah, just a place with its own culture and own people. And yeah, um, but it was also nice to be among them and he's like at the restaurants and stuff. Um, who had come there to work. So I definitely got me thinking that I wanted to go back to, to, to Yemen soon and just southern Yemen to like Aden mm-hmm. and things like that, which is, we'll see. Hopefully it'll happen. Maybe. Possible. Um, is it possible, you yeah. yeah, it is possible. It is possible. I mean, I would have to get a visa, which seems possible. Um, I I mean, Aden is like, you know, kind of dicey sometimes. Sometimes it's always dicey, but um, there, are, you know, foreigners do go there, and it is journalists have gone, and it is. Um, I mean, journalists have gone to Houthi-controlled Yemen as well. Um, mm. Not as much journalists who have lived in who lived in Yemen previously. I wouldn't want to do that. I, but I would love to go to southern Yemen at some point. So I, I hope that that can happen. Um, you know, you just have to be careful and things like that. The problem is, is that, you know, you want to go. If I went there to report, and you'd want to report on the war, and a lot of the war is happening in Houthi-controlled areas so that is a bit tricky then to figure out what is the story I would report on from the south Mm. um there is a lot happening in the south but it's a little bit less of interest to American publications um like with regards to the southern separatist movements and the government and things like that but there's definitely there's many stories there I just have to figure out um I have to figure out the best and smartest way to go back I guess and what do you do now what do you do now yeah, so now I do a lot, uh, a lot of little things. Um, but I, I've started to work a bit in documentaries and uh, documentary filmmaking. I live now in Los Angeles, so I'm making my own documentary about Socotra. But then I work as a producer on another very America-focused documentary um, that's being made. And um, I sort of still do some writing and editing and reporting here and there. But generally, what I, I sort of, I, I moved back to the U.S. in 2018. Um, kind of, or 2019, I guess, uh, um, a bit because of some family reasons and then family health reasons. And then I thought it'd be a good opportunity to maybe try to pivot some into working on film because it's something that I've always wanted to do. Uh, and I just 
was reporting prints and, and living overseas. So I didn't get into it that much, but um, it's been good. It's sort of slowly happening. And I mean, the pandemic was kind of nuts, but I now it sort of is happening and the ball is rolling on that. So I hope to do that a bit more, but I'm still trying to write. I mean, I, I, I don't want to sort of abandon writing and I'm still trying to do some reporting, but I'm also trying to maybe get a little bit more into um, maybe some more creative writing focused things. Uh, so that are a little bit less journalism and maybe a bit more creative writing. So trying to do that. Um, but yeah, I still, you know, it's uh, still still kind of a journalist here and there. So it looks a bit, it looks a bit different these days. I have I have some dreams of uh, getting in of, of like going back for a master's in Arabic or something like that and getting into literary translation. Though we'll see if that ends up happening. I don't know, but I. Um, I'm, I'm, it might, it might, a master's is a big commitment for a lot of reasons. So, and I, I ran away from getting a master's degree before, so I might do it again, but I, I would love to get into literary translation, but my Arabic is not good enough right now. So I would, I would love to do something to sort of crank it up a notch and see where it goes from there. But I'm always, I realize I'm someone who likes to do a lot of different things. And I think what happened is having worked in breaking news in Yemen and throughout the Arab spring, I realized that that wasn't necessarily for me. I didn't really want to work in breaking news uh so much because it also kind of I felt like a bit pigeonholed by that and so yeah I'm always sort of someone who likes to do various things and then also pursues things that are um I mean there's breaking news is very important I I think that I like to sort of take a step back and maybe approach things a bit more slowly um and a bit more like sort of long-form feature journalism which is what I was doing before I moved back to the U.S. Um, and what I'm still hoping to do now, but mix in with the filmmaking. Yeah. And are you still in contact with Yemenis that you've um, you've had relationships with in Yemen? Yeah. Like friends. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, the sad thing right now with yet with um, with Yemen and a lot of the Yemenis that I knew were Yemenis who were able to get out. Um, and so not all of them. I mean, a lot of them are still in Yemen, but um, a lot of them got out so they're sort of spread around you know with like very, maybe with refugee status somewhere or as a student somewhere or, um maybe living in Cairo maybe living in Beirut um you know because of the war people left and looking for opportunities so a lot of people I know are spread out but we try to stay in contact you know as much as possible I know I know that one thing that was quite sad and a, a Yemeni friend sort of has brought this up to me who's now a refugee um you know, said that, he, that they felt like there was a very much a lack of closure with regards to their lives and what they were doing in Yemen. You know, they were involved in so much activism and then the war happened and everyone kind of left. And it is, there is sort of that sad part of it that it feels like everyone left and got spread out and there was a lack of closure. And so that, that I think that's been hard on people, but I try to stay in touch, you know, and I still meet, I mean, I, via work reasons, you know, just, met a lovely Yemeni woman who that I spent some who lives in Cairo who I spent some time with when I was just in Cairo uh last month so I you know it's still it's it's just it's just become a part of my life it's not like anything I don't know it's personal like it, it's like a, it's just become my life a personal part of my life now is that mm. I'm friends with lots of Yemenis so which is nice mm. and do you call a meeting uh, to work with Carmen in the media tent you wrote about that in the book. How was that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember, um, oh, I can tell the story about Tawakal. 
um, especially now because the person's passed away who the story is about, uh, mm-hmm. not Tawakal, but someone else. But I met Tawakal a number of times um, before she, and, and before she was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, her, when the government arrested her at the very, very beginning of 2011 in the protest movement, um, kind of before the Egyptian revolution happened, uh, you know, there were, like I spoke about last time, there were sort of these organized protests by the opposition move, uh, coalition. Tawaka, when Tawaka was arrested, that kind of started something. It like started the government, it was like the government was really provoking and by arresting her um, because she was sort of a big figure in Yemen's Islamist party, El Islah. And then, uh, I don't know, there was a big pushback against that. And I remember that did start to feel as well like something was starting i remember for the Nobel peace prize i um i remember going to change square i was trying to like track her down and your your voice your voice is talking her in a tent in the tent where she normally was uh, i can't hear you uh i knew her and her husband and it was just, you know, um, nominated for, for Nobel Peace Prize. Okay. Uh, yeah. How about now? Should I, should I? Can you close your camera? Maybe it might be. Uh... Hey, can you speak now? Yeah. How about yeah, now? Yeah. yeah, yeah it's okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah. So we're about the kidnapping. That's when it starts cutting off. That's when it starts cutting off. Okay. Yeah. So when Tawaka was arrested, that was um, a big moment of when I it felt like things were sort of kicking off with regards to the protests. I mean, the moment when it really felt like it was the moment after the Egyptian Revolution, but um still when Tawaka was arrested which was early January I think uh if my memory serves me correctly that's when I don't know it just felt like the energy was changing the opposition it was the opposition was really upset at that um particularly Islamist party of which Tawaka was a member but anyway but going back so I I had met her a number of times and I knew her and um People really didn't like her, I will say, from the ruling party. Um, but you know, she came from a very much she comes from an, a family steeped in Yemeni oppositional politics. So it's it's her and her family and things like that. But anyway, I I remember when she won the Nobel Peace Prize, um, which I believe was October early October 2011. Um, I went to her tent, which where I knew where her tent was at Change Square, and I went into her tent, and you know, her husband was there, sort of standing guard, and she was in there, and she was talking with like some Yemeni women who were sitting in the tent with her, and it was so crazy that this person just won the Nobel Peace Prize, and um, and she, here she was, uh, just you know, sitting here on the ground in Change Square, talking with these talking with these women, and and then I asked her if I could talk to her a bit for an interview. Um, and she agreed and we were chatting. And then while we were chatting, I got a phone call from a Yemeni friend who was related to um, this guy who's the former, pre- he was the former prime minister. His name was Dr. Abdul Karim Al-Iriani. He has since now passed away. Um, yeah. And he was he was very close with Salah. I mean, he was 
the prime, he had been the prime minister and he still was kind of Salah's informal advisor, or maybe not so informal, but um, he was definitely a very important person in the ruling party, but he was seen as a bit more of a moderate and he was kind of like the intellectual of, of sort of the upper echelon of, of Yemi ruling party. And so, and he was a very nice guy and uh, I knew him and anyway, uh, one of his family members called me and said, Laura, are you with Tawakal right now? And I was like, uh, yeah, I'm with Tawakal. And he said, okay, well, uh, you know, Dr. Abu Karim wants to talk to her, wants to tell her congratulations. And he didn't know how to reach her, but we figured we could reach her through you. And I was like, okay, yeah, I am here with her. And uh, but Dr. Abu Karim called my, called my cell phone and I handed the phone to Tawakal and Tawakal talked with him for a bit. So it was really, um, is that the story? Or maybe it wasn't him. Maybe it was Hattie who wanted to talk to Tawakal, the president. Oh God, now I feel like I'm doing the story wrong. No, I, I think it's okay. It's, I think it was Hadi, not Doctor Abdul Karim. Okay, so what yeah. happened? No, okay, I'll let's go back. Okay, yeah, sorry, okay. I forgot this. Yeah, yeah, I forgot no how it went. Okay, so <laughs> no, Doctor Abdul Karim called me. This is what it was. Doctor Abdul Karim called me, who has since passed away, and and said, "We, where are you, Laura?" Because I I knew him, so it would be weird for him not to call me directly. So yeah, that's how the story went. He called me directly and said, and I said, "Oh, I'm in the tent right now with Tawakal." I said, "Oh, well, Hadi wants, who's now the president of Yemen? Hadi wants to tell her congratulations." So um. Yeah. So I said, oh yeah. So then I like handed my cell phone or maybe then like he said, I'm going to hang up and a number is going to call you and it's going to be Hattie or something. And at that time, I mean, it seemed pretty clear. I mean, Hattie was the vice president and it seemed pretty clear that Salah probably was going to step down and Hattie was going to become president. I mean, it was still in negotiations, but um, mm -hmm. anyway, then I gave the phone to Tulakal and Hattie uh, told Tulakal congratulations. So that's how, that's how it went. Um, yeah. Oh my gosh. I forget. But I was, I was, I was like, okay, this is, this is kind of ridiculous um, being as the mediator, but that's how Yemen was. It was a small world, you know? So it was, um, it's, yeah, it's, it's a small world, which is part of the reason why it felt, you know, why, why it, it was, it was lovely in a way. Everyone kind of knew everyone, but yeah, I remember that. And Tawakal talked to, talk to him. I mean, they were definitely on opposite sides of a political fight and they, uh, though maybe a little bit less so now, but anyway, they, um, yeah, Tawakal has since done a lot of stuff. I'm not, I haven't totally followed her and her um, activism career since the Nobel Peace Prize, but uh, sometimes she says things that can be a bit, feel a bit crazy, I think, with regards yeah. to Yemen. But she, uh, yeah, but at that time it was People nice. And you know, the one, yeah, the one thing about Tawakal I will say is that, um, you know, I don't know what she's been doing recently, but at that time, you know, she was at Change Square, sitting on the ground, talking to some poor Yemeni women. I mean, women who were middle-class or less and sort of being there and talking to them lovingly. And she, and she did, you know, she was talking to them in a really loving way. And there weren't a lot, there's a lot of um, sort of Yemeni, Yemeni women within the elite class who are, have a, you know, politically minded this and that, but they wouldn't be doing that. So that was, that was special to see that, I think. Um, and, and yeah, yeah, that's what, so it was the conduit between her and Hattie wanted to tell her congratulations and they couldn't figure out how to reach her. So they called me anyway. Yeah. And are you working at, do you have any future plans like besides this documentary you're working on? Do you have like another book or something you're producing? Oh, I have some dreams for a book, but I keeping them, uh, keeping it under wraps for now. Yeah, yeah. I actually do have dreams for a book that has to do with Yemen, but I, um, it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't really have to do with the war. It's about something else, but I, I can't say anything now. Okay, okay. Unfortunately. <laughs>
and um, do you have any tips for aspiring journalists and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I, you know, I've been asked this question a lot, and it definitely would depend who was asking. Like, if an American was asking, or you know, versus an Egyptian or a Yemeni or something both, like that. So both. I don't. Yeah, I mean, I can answer the question more so as an American because that's what I am. So it, okay. um, it's a little bit. It's so you know, if your audience is, I, I just feel I feel bad answering it as an American. But typically, what I would say is, is. To, to, to an American is move overseas and move out of the US and, and try to get a job for an English language publication in another country. I mean, there, there are fewer, there's less and less these days. Um, there are a couple of big ones that people used to sort of launch their careers working for. Um, I mean, Daily News Egypt was one of them, Daily Star, Lebanon was another, which I think just folded. Um, there's an English language publication in Cambodia, which is one where a lot of people got their start. But anyway, that was just working for an English language publication overseas is, is the best way, I think, and, and getting out of, there's too many people in the US trying to be journalists, so that, and then also learning a foreign language because it's such an asset to do that. So learning a foreign language and going and working in that place, um, it sort of puts you, it gives you an advantage over um, other people. So that's that's one of the big things, but for people who are, you know, the, um, for everyone everywhere, I would say, it's just kind of do it, which is really, which I know sounds really crazy, but the, the funny thing that happened with me in journalism, I remember someone when I was just working at an English language magazine in Cairo and I, I kind of liked it. I, I realized I kind of liked a lot of things about journalism, but I had, you know, I didn't study journalism. I didn't know anything about it. And I realized that it was, um, if you have a good ideas, you can kind of just do it. So you, I mean, it's, you know, I, I had a lot of, you know, you know, privileges in, 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 in many ways, but also with regards to, I mean, if, if, if you can write and you can come up with yeah. ideas, um, then you can pitch them and it, and it's, it's really, and, it, and, and like, you're going to have a lot of setbacks and I didn't get a lot of rejection. I still get so much rejection all the time now. Um, but it's so much rejection. So, but it's, uh, yeah, you just have to be used to putting yourself out there and, um, and pitching and pitching, but definitely start small first. Like if, you know, pitch sort of really smaller publications and, and then also, you know, at the beginning have another job because it's, it's impossible to actually make money doing it. So uh, when you're, when you're first, it's hard to make money doing it at any point, but particularly when you're getting started. So, um, don't have it be your main source of income. <laughs> See if you can, you know, do part-time, part-time or something like that. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it is just a matter of sort of, and then also like meeting people, always being open for what's a story, um, cultivating relationships and just like consuming a lot of news as well. Really, I notice when I read, the more that I read sort of, you know, magazines and things like that and keep up with the reading things, the more new ideas come to me. So it's really it's a matter of, of consuming a lot, but then also putting yourself out there because whenever I am out there reporting, doing something, I always get ideas for other stories. So being in the field, being working also always like gives ideas for new things. Um, so I don't know if, if, if that helps as well at all, but uh, yeah, really just is, and it's also a lot of luck. I mean, everything is, a, a lot of jobs are a lot of luck, but journalism is a lot of luck. So being in the right place at the right time has to do with a lot of, of 
how successful one is as a journalist. Unfortunately, sadly, that's the yeah. truth. So um, during the last episode, we didn't get into like the process of how you came to write this book. Like initially, yeah. did, did you have this thought of writing a book on your experience in the back of your head? Or how did that happen? Because it's certain here that it was published in 2016. So that's nearly like three or four years after you've covered the yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was probably the paperback was published then. I think uh, the yeah, hard copy yeah. was published in 2014, but yeah. I, or maybe 2015. Oh, God, I don't know. Um, I should know that. I, <laughs> no, I mean, I didn't think, I didn't think about writing a book until the very end. I remember the idea first came to me in August, 2011, after sort of a lot of stuff had already happened um, with regards to the Arab Spring in Yemen. Um, it felt like it is, it's, it's a question. I, I felt like I had to process all of what had just happened. I felt like it was, what had just happened was a book as well. I felt like this was an insane thing. It was a year and it was, and it was insane in Yemen, you know, for Yemen, what happened was insane. Not a lot of foreigners were witness to it. Um, so I felt like getting that down, what happened that year was really important. Um, I felt like the insane thing happened to me personally within that year, um, and I felt like those two stories, sort of what happened with Yemen and what happened with me personally, um, you know, could be told. And I, so I felt it, it, it occurred to me that there were, I had a book in, in me basically. And that was, I remember thinking like, well, okay, if I feel that way, then I should probably pursue it because how many times is it so clear like to, yeah. to you that there is a book, you know, like this is a book and it's, it's just so clear how it can go. Um, so that was that was part of it. I mean, I did want to record what happened in Yemen for Yemenis. I mean, for the you know the purpose of recording it, I wanted to record what was my experience in Yemen because I think that it you know it's very different than what a lot of foreigners think with regards to what life is like for a foreigner in Yemen. And I thought that it was important to write about that, about all the things that you know these sort of crazy things about suffering and witnessing violence, and but also how Yemenis responded to me within that violence. I thought that it was something really special and I thought that it um I wanted to write it for that purpose and you know some occasionally I'll uh, people read the book and I'll see reviews or they'll I'll hear reviews or something where it's like oh you know I learned a lot about Yemen and Yemeni's reaction to foreigners and things like that and I really appreciate that people got that um from when people get that from the book it's it's what I appreciate because it's not a pure political history like if it was a political history it wouldn't be about me um I was you know it, it it's it's about something else. Sometimes people read it, I think, for like a pure political history. And I'm like, well, that's definitely not what it is. Um, but I feel like I say that at the beginning. So I don't know why they'd be reading a memoir for political history. But anyway, um, so that, okay. So, and then I think that also then I left Yemen and I just felt, I felt like I left Yemen at the end of 20 or beginning of 2012. And I felt like it was something I had to do. That's when at first it like occurred to me, like, oh, I have a book inside me. Maybe it's something I should do. And then it became something I had to do where I just felt like I was, I, I had to process everything that had happened. I didn't know how else to process it. It seemed like the only way to process it and think through everything. And I just felt like I had to do it because it had all, it was all so extreme and insane. <laughs> um, you know, particularly with regards to the violence, but then just also just everything that had happened. I know politically everything that had happened. Um, personally, things that had happened to me, I, you know, I think that I learned a lot about, you know, at the end of my time there, I was, I did know, I, I felt like a little bit more entrenched in elites than I wanted to be. And 
I was like, how did that happen? I mean, it's, it's crazy how that happens. Uh, you know, but I, as, as a privileged person in a place that you would get entrenched with the elites. Um, but I, I just didn't like it. I wanted, I just, I just wanted to see how I became the person. I felt like I needed to write the book to see how I became the person I became at the end of my time in Yemen. So mm. I'm, I'm great. And I'm grateful that that was able to happen. And I, I had the opportunity to do so. Yeah. How, how so long I, does it take you to finish the book? Not long enough. It should have taken long. <laughs> I had, I had a lot of pressure to finish it really quickly. So it took, um, let me think 2012, 20, I mean a year and a half, but I think it should have been, I wish I had had more time, honestly. Mm. It was, I mean, to finish it. So when it was the final version was, a, I started writing it a year and a half, but I wish that I, I, I had a lot of pressure for my public publisher to finish it really quickly. And I feel like I wish that that hadn't been the case, but mm. it was. So since we don't have much time, do they have any closing remarks? You know, your thoughts on Yemen, where you see Yemen, Yemeni politics is going, anything yeah. of that sort? Sure. Um, I mean, I don't follow Yemen in super detail anymore, so I don't want to be make some sort of, uh, I don't know, talk, you know, some make some political analysis. I also learned when I was in Yemen that predicting anything in Yemen is, um, is, the, is not a good idea. <laughs> because things always go away you don't assume but I mean it's 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 really terrible that um you know it's gone the direction that it's gone and it has to do with a lot of things I mean Hattie has been an absolutely horrible president so he's been he when he who he's surrounded with and who he surrounded himself with and it's it's just it it's brought up a lot of problems and it just never I don't there's a lot of reasons why it's gone the way it's gone, but mm. I obviously, you know, the, the Saudi Arabia and sort of the Arab coalition getting, getting involved in things has only served to make the situation worse in a lot of ways. So um, both in terms of the fact that they've, you know, people dying and just war, but also the blockade and, and what that's done. And, and it's entrenched the Houthis more. I mean, the Houthis make a lot of really horrible political decisions as well and um it's i i don't know if they're just i i it's there needs to be a sort of a renegotiation of things but the, the houthis seem like they're going to be in control for a while and there's nothing that we're going to do about that and saudis definitely aren't going to win against the in their war against the houthis so it seems pretty silly to keep trying but anyway that's that whole thing is like i said a lot of people know a lot more about that than i do at this point um mm. More so what I, what I hope is sort of, you know, the reconciliation and the beauty that I saw at Change Square, um, that that won't be forgotten and whatever Yemen is in the future. But I, it is, it is really sad. I mean, Yemen, Yemenis were actually really good at conflict negotiation and then Yemeni tribalism is quite good at conflict negotiation. And I don't, I don't know, there was sort of this breaking down of society that happened when the Houthis took over um, in a, um div dividing of society um that it seems like it's hard to overcome and i'm not really sure um hmm. i mean there's a lot of reasons why that happens uh but yeah that's been the saddest part i think is seeing people you know people who are from the north who maybe are sayids are hashemites like that yeah. people then other friends will be like oh you're houthi you're houthi you're houthi because houthi is really privileged hashemites um 
and it's like no they aren't who like it's there's a really sort of dividing like that but you know the sort of around the polarizations happening around the world and polarization really, really happened in Yemen as well. And um, yeah, that's been really sad, but uh, we, I don't, I'm not sure. I mean, whatever is gonna happen, if Hattie is still president, it's not gonna go well, it doesn't seem. All right, thank you so much uh, for your time. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It was my pleasure. And to everyone uh, listening, uh, this is Laura's book, Don't be, Don't be Afraid of the Bullets. I'll put the link in the description on Apple Podcasts, uh, YouTube, everywhere, so you guys could buy it. And I recommend you do. It's a great read. And that's it. Thank you for listening. All right, thanks.